0: another week another review that's how we roll here on the benefit of a doubt podcast and this week we're taking a look at the tcl 10 5g uw from verizon tcl is taking 5g to the sub 400 hundred dollar mark again and if there's one company that can do that it is tcl so let's give it a look it's the benefit of a doubt podcast Hello and welcome to the Benefit of a doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we have a pair of reviews for you. The first, of course, is the TCL Ten Five g UW, as I mentioned during the intro. The second is the Shuin Smooth X Gimbal, and I'm just going to say it right here. I don't know how to pronounce Shuin. I've been using their products for years. And I generally try not to say their name out loud. No one on the internet knows how to pronounce it either. So anyway, I'm reviewing that too. But first, we have to get to the news of the week. <laughs> Last week, I talked about an asteroid that might strike the Earth in 2068, but I mentioned it in passing, and some of you have been like, um, wait, go back there for a second. So, here's the full story. NASA has been tracking Apophis, named after the Egyptian god of chaos and one of the OG villains on Stargate SG-1 BT-dubs. There's a slight chance that this asteroid could strike the Earth in 48 years. The asteroid was first spotted back in 2004, and at the time, scientists concluded that it was going to be fine Everything's fine. However, those calculations were determined using true gravitational orbit and didn't account for the asteroid passing near the sun. It turns out when an asteroid flies through space and passes near a star, the warm side gives it a teeny little push to one side that ultimately alters its orbit, bringing the impact scenario into play. Right now, the odds are about 1 in 150,000, which might seem like a teeny tiny bit, but if you ask me... That's a teeny tiny bit too much. Apophis will make another close pass at Earth in 2029 on Friday the 13th, because of course it will, and scientists will be able to better track it at that time and figure out how deep we'll need to build our bunker. Frankly, I have little hope of being alive in 2068, but I'd like to think my kids and my grandkids will be, and I'd like them to not get burned to a fiery death, so I will be tracking this story very closely, and I'm going to start digging in my backyard too. You know just in case. This next story is more of a PSA for my U.S. listeners. According to State Tax Code, if you worked from home during this pandemic, you might need to update your tax forms with new withholdings in order to properly pay your taxes next year. Now, I'm not a tax expert, but from what I gathered, this applies only to people who live in one state and work in another but remained in the first state due to lockdowns and whatnot. This also applies to people who work for the man and are not self-employed or freelance, FYI. All the same, definitely something to mention to your tax preparer when you sit down with them in January, not April, because you're a responsible taxpayer and not a procrastinating freelancer like me. Ezra Klein is an editor over at Vox, which I'm sure you probably know by now is a company that I use frequently as a news source. Ezra wrote a book last December about how very polarized people have become. Surprisingly, social media didn't get a chapter or even a footnote, and as such, this story will actually remain a footnote of its own in this news segment. Klein recently sat down with Wired for an interview. And as it turns out, over the last 50 years, media and political institutions have taken more and more extreme positions on issues in order to appeal to a continually wider base it turns out we didn't need social media to do that we just needed individuals and organizations that didn't want to be confused with the other side basically think of it like this you have one candidate that is for i don't know i'm going to make something up here gopher control them gophers gotta go why gophers I have no idea, but it's my podcast. Anyway, so one candidate wants to nuke all the gophers. The other candidate is like, well, sure, gophers suck, but we really should be focusing on Twinkies. Now, this candidate doesn't want to not get elected because some followers want to get rid of gophers, but they don't care about Twinkies, and that other guy really wants to get rid of gophers, so let's just vote for him. So the second guy goes after gopher lovers because a lot of them don't like Twinkies either, so let's just get on board that train and voila! polarization 1955 style now is this all very simplistic and stupid yes once again my podcast so if you want to know more about it check out the article in the show notes or better yet just go pick up the book and since we're flirting with non-tech stories here let's get one more out of the way but there is a tech angle here so just you know bear with me Nandi Bushell is a 10-year-old drumming prodigy from Ipswich, England, who posted a viral video playing drums to Nirvana's In Bloom a few months back. The drummer for that song, Dave Grohl, is currently the frontman for the band Foo Fighters. Now, Foo Fighters has had various encounters with the internet, most notably in Italy a few years ago when around a 1,000 musicians gathered together to play one of their songs. It's kind of a long story. Anyway, so this 10-year-old whose passion for playing drums you can just see in her face Bass, and it's just delightful. She issued a challenge for a drum-off to growl and he caught wind of it, leading to the frontman of a famous rock and roll band and a 10-year-old kid from Ipswich having a drum-off over Zoom and forming a fast friendship. And that's what's really awesome about the world that we live in. Two people from opposite sides of the world can form a connection over something they love and... That's honestly not all that different from you and me. We form a connection over the tech we love, and at no other time in history was this ever possible. And that's just the best thing ever. Love you, peeps. But let's get back to the tech. And speaking of listeners, I wanted to start off this next news item with an email that I got from one of you, benefitofedow.com slash contact, by the way. And it comes from Jason, who says, quote, don't talk bad about printers, dude. They all just have filthy attitudes. I am a 20-year tech, so I'm wondering if are you using crappy ink jets or laser jets? If ink jets, you're getting what you deserve, and <laughs> guilty. If you're using an HP laser jet, there are better options than HP. Anyway, great show this week. And thank you, Jason. Great email. And yes, printers are the devil, but this news story comes from the Electronic Frontier Foundation talking about HP and how it is, well, I'll put it the way the EFF did, the Darth Vader of sleaze. Because recently, HP changed an ink policy that it had from free ink for life to a subscription plan for 99 cents per month, or your printer will stop working plan. Um, Basically, once you, air quotes, subscribe to HP's printer ink replacement program, you're in for life and you cannot opt out of it lest your printer just stop working. And HP did all this when? During a pandemic where millions of people are working from home and using printers to print up important work stuff. Needless to say, the EFF is none too happy with HP and I'm happy I haven't yet subscribed to that ink program because now EFF that. And frankly... F-H-P, if you know what I mean, because it's a big-time jerk move from a company that has a history of jerk moves, and damn it, why did you kill off WebOS? Sorry. Not sure what happened there. And suddenly a new competitor enters the Aerial Arena. Just one week after we saw DJI release its latest DJI mini-drone, we get an announcement from Sony that it is entering the drone arena itself. And why is this significant? Well, drones are also called sky cameras, and Sony knows a thing or two about cameras. They're probably just still working on the sky part. Sony is also a large enough company that can afford to enter a new market and work its way up from scratch. It's been doing that with smartphones for years now, and Lord knows those aren't making any money. DJI has long dominated the drone space, which is a space in desperate need of a second competitor, because there's DJI, then there's 50 yards of crap, and then there's everyone else. To say that DJI has dominated the drone market would be like saying that Earth has dominated the human market. It's a little silly. Which really makes DJI all the more funny because its dominance has grown and grown and it's really just competing with itself at this point. The DJI Mini 2 is a lot more than $50 better than the OG Mavic Mini, but DJI is keeping the price competitive, presumably with itself. It's actually a little weird. Still, it'll be nice to see some other companies up in the skies and we'll learn more about what that means next year. And before we get to our big Apple news of the week, Apple dropped a smaller announcement indicating that developers will have to start submitting air quotes, nutrition labels, along with their apps, advising what permissions will be asked for and why. This will give users a better idea of what an app will do and why it'll do it. More so, it'll cut down on the developer's ability to surreptitiously get permissions without explicitly saying why it needs them. There's very good reasons why a gas-finding app needs your location. Gas Buddy. But there's no reason to need it when the app isn't active. Gas Buddy. Whoa, boy, I can't wait to read up that nutrition label on Gas Buddy. Am I right? What are you going to tell people, huh, Gas Buddy? Yeah, I thought so. Getting back to the issue at hand, though, developers need to be very clear about what they're asking for and why. A generic, we need access to your phone logs is enough to make some people second-guess that app entirely, but many, many people just hit OK or allow and don't give it a second thought, and that's what Apple is trying to fix here. And speaking of Apple trying to fix things, next on the list is Apple's broken relationship with Intel because this week Apple rolled out its One More Thing event where it introduced a new MacBook Air, new MacBook Pro, and new Mac Mini, all running Apple's new ARM-based chip, the M1. Apple went into a lot of PR detail about the M1 and why it's amazing, and I'll be honest... My eyes kind of glazed over a little bit. The M1 is built on a 5-nanometer process, and it took a lot of the components that you'd normally find all over a circuit board and compressed them into just one processor, which is really cool. And it's also very power-conservative, and, well, it doesn't require a fan, which is awesome. The new computers will all run this new silicon, and Apple assures us that all the big developers are on board and will be launching their own apps to work with ARM architecture in the near future. In the meantime, there's an emulator ready to run legacy apps while Apple makes this transition. And what surprised me was the addition of the MacBook Pro, because that's Apple's prosumer laptop that I and pretty much everyone else in my industry uses to do that thing that they do. And for the most part, using ARM architecture isn't that bad. Except when you try to do things that I try to do. Now, Apple says that the new M1 chip is more than capable of doing that heavy lifting, but instead of quoting actual numbers, it resorted to PR speak in comparisons to the most popular PCs out there. Which is great, until you realize that popular is not the same as good. You know, just like it was back in high school. I remember Apple saying earlier in the summer that this would be a two to three year process to transition, so I'd assumed that more Intel-based computers were to come, which in hindsight was probably naive and stupid. But now that I'm in the market for a new computer, Apple just made the decision for me to go with Windows because I have zero interest in beta testing Apple's new silicon as my daily driver, especially when I can get an equally powerful, emulator-free Dell XPS laptop for basically the same price... And I kind of love Dell XPS Computers, this podcast not brought to you by Dell. Anyway, getting back to the Apple announcement, I'm sure that Apple is super excited about the M1 and how powerful it says the processor is. I'm just not convinced enough to be a guinea pig for them. And this is coming from a guy who has an iPhone and an iPad right now, and I'm actually really pissed off that a MacBook Pro just isn't an option for me because I was honestly leaning in that direction. But maybe I'm being too hasty? What do you think, NN Tech? As it turns out, Anantech calls Apple's speed claims to be extremely plausible, and MacRumors kind of makes it understandable for humans. Anantech has a really intricate deep dive into the claims that Apple makes, going along with some other details that the site was able to glean from the presentation, about the architecture and the components that are actually inside the chip that Apple didn't bother to say out loud. Based on all that, they're inclined to think that Apple may not be talking out of its ass, which is good for those who will be ordering those new computers. Specifically, MacRumors points to a graph showing the progress of Intel processor power versus Apple silicon power, and the long story short is that Apple has been growing by leaps and bounds since the A9 processor, while Intel has barely moved its own needle. That being said, will Apple start to plateau now that it's reached Intel heights? That remains to be seen. For now, I wish Apple well in its efforts, and while it seems like Apple's claims may be legit, I'm still going to give it a generation or two before I pull any kind of Apple MacBook trigger. You may have heard that there was an election last week, and as it stands right now, Donald Trump will not be our president come January. Trump has spent every waking moment between last Tuesday and now screaming that it's unfair and the election was rigged, and I need to tell you right now... I am not here to spike the ball. This isn't about the election. But one of the side effects of that election is that Trump seems to have kind of forgotten that he was supposed to ban TikTok on Thursday. As of November 12th, TikTok was supposed to have sold off its U.S. assets to Oracle and Walmart in order to make the Chinese company pay the U.S. a little bit of money or else the app was going to get banned. Well, as I write this on November 12th, TikTok is still in the app store, so it seems the Trump administration might be a little distracted at the moment which is good news for tiktok and benefit of a doubt's tiktok account but bad news for the commander-in-chief who just wants to spend five more minutes at the park before mommy takes him home for his nap okay so i'm spiking the ball a little bit leave me alone the other day my wife asked me hey we don't have a Ring doorbell, do we? And I replied, nope, but literally every other one. And it's true, our front door has hosted the likes of NetView, Google, Vivint, Blue, and most recently, Wise, but nary a Ring. And that's a good thing, because they're going all Note 7 on some of their users and triggering a 350,000-unit recall. Apparently, the problem only occurs when the doorbells are installed with incorrect screws, which, (laughs) yeah, I'll be honest, that's totally something my lazy ass would do. 23 homes and people have been damaged due to these fires, so Ring is recalling them all. And I'm guessing the battery is just located too close to the mounting holes that the screws go through? Either way, if you have one and you think you might be affected, hit up the link in the show notes for instructions, which, basically, the instructions are just contact us and we'll help you out. But even if you use the proper screws, maybe you're okay, but honestly, just contact them anyway and make sure. And finally, in what can only be seen as inevitable, Google Photos will be ending its unlimited photo storage for high-quality photos starting in June of next year since 2015, Google has allowed you to upload as many photos as you want that were compressed, but, you know, not all that compressed, and it wouldn't cut into your storage. Full resolution photos did cut that storage. Google will be ending that perk in June. Now, personally, I love Google Photos, and even if it wasn't free, I'd still use it. It just sucks that I'll have to pay for the additional storage now, but, you know, whatever. Actually, I might start using Amazon Photos for full quality while using Google Photos for high quality. I think Amazon is still Unlimited for Prime members, I'll have to check into that. But anyway, some bemoan this decision, and, you know, rightly so. That's fair. It sucks when something that was free is no longer free. I'm looking at you, HP. Others praise the move because the alternative was basically to shut down Google Photos entirely, and that would have really sucked. Plus, this is Google we're talking about here. They're not shy on pulling that particular trigger. Still others have pointed to this removal of a free service as exactly the reason why Google needs to be broken up as a company. What? Specifically cited are startups like Everpix, Loom, and Picture Life. Never heard of them? Well, that's because they're dead. And why are they dead? Because Google offered basically a competing service for free... And it's really hard to compete with free. Google used the insane amounts of money that it makes to offer this service for free, which by extension pretty much prevented anyone else from coming up with a competing service. Now that everyone else is dead, Google can start charging. Nice, Google. Don't be evil, right? Anyway, high-quality photos uploaded until June of next year will continue to be free and unlimited. Additionally, full-resolution photos uploaded from Pixel devices will continue to be free as well, which is a nice bonus for Pixel users. One of the really cool things about the LG Wing is that it has this built-in gimbal in the camera when the wing locks its S-foils into attack position. Gimbals in phones are slowly becoming a thing, but the vast majority of phones do not have gimbals built into them. So what is a boy to do? Well, one thing is to use a smartphone gimbal, and this mini-review comes to you from one such gimbal maker. The company's name is hard to pronounce. Like, literally. I asked them how to pronounce it, and they're like, um... Sorry, but I call them shooing when I absolutely have to say it out loud. I've used a few of their gimbals in the past for my DSLR cameras, and now I'm using one for my smartphone. Cameras on phones are amazing these days, and that's very much the case for cameras like the Samsung Galaxy S20 FE and the iPhone 12 Pro, but those phones can have bouncy footage just like any other phone. Electronic stabilization, like what you'd get from VidHands, can only do so much, and honestly, how many other show references can I put into one review? A gimbal allows you to shoot very steady footage regardless of your situation. If you want to get a great pan shot, or even a time-lapse pan shot, or if you just want to shoot to walk on the beach and or even in rough terrain environment like rock climbing, the Smooth X gimbal is a good choice to carry with you. So, let's start out by looking at what's in the box. What's in the box? You get a carrying case with a pouch for the charging connection cable. You get the gimbal itself Plus, the case has room in it for a mini tripod as well. It's all very compact and easily portable. The gimbal itself is made of plastic, but I wouldn't say it feels cheap in any way. There are two buttons and a joystick on the handle, which we will get to. Plus, the gimbal extends out to 26 centimeters or just under a foot, and it turns the gimbal into basically an enhanced selfie stick. Of course, you can use the gimbal to lift your camera up and get a higher shot that you might be looking for, or you can, you know, use it as a selfie stick. I went with the former far more often. As I mentioned, the gimbal can come with a mini tripod, which gives you an extra 6 inches or so to grip the gimbal. Plus, and I didn't mention this before, the gimbal handle has a standard 3 8 inch tripod mount on the bottom so you can even set the gimbal on a full size tripod for extra smooth shots or pans or whatever you need. I particularly like the mini tripod because I can set it on a table and then use the joystick to get some really good pans. Now, before we get too much further, I should point out that this is a two-axis gimbal only. There's only roll and pan motors, but no tilt, but the end of the gimbal is movable, so you can kind of sort of do a manual tilt, but that's not really the point of the gimbal. You can only stabilize left and right and side to side, and before you ask, no, those are not the same things. I don't think. Gimbals like the DJI Osmo Mobile can move on all three axes, and this one only moves on two. It takes a little getting used to, especially if you've had three-axis gimbals in the past. The gimbal connects to your phone via Bluetooth and an app that's available for iOS and Android. I did most of my testing on Android, but iOS works quite well as well. I've read that the Zyakami app isn't available on all Android devices, but I have yet to come across one that didn't work. On previous gimbals that I've used, I've run into connectivity problems when using the gimbal in a crowded place, but we're not allowed to go to crowded places now, so I can't speak to whether or not that's the case here. The app also has a camera function built in that allows you to activate other modes like follow mode. You can draw a box on an object on the screen and the gimbal locks to that object. Then regardless of where you move the gimbal, that object stays in the frame. It can also do the same thing for faces, which again, kind of drives home the selfie stick portion of this device. The buttons on the handle are well-placed and easy to use. The mode button allows you to switch between roll pan follow, roll follow, and lock. Honestly, I'm not a cinematographer, so the differences those modes make are completely lost on me, but I have been assured by, you know, whoever, that they're really, really cool. Mostly, I use the gimbal for pan shots for YouTube and stuff like that. The record button is handy as well. You can start a video recording or take a photo. Plus, multiple presses allow you to cycle through the video and the photo mode and switch between the front-facing and rear-facing cameras, which is pretty cool. You can also use the side button for zooming in and out, so all the controls that you need are right there. The app enables you to do other stuff like edit videos and post to social media. I didn't really dig into those features too much. I have a work flow in that regard that works for me, but if that floats your boat, go for it. There are some downsides here, though. First and foremost is the fact that this is only a two-axis gimbal. Not that tilt is all that valuable, but in some situations, it can be. The gimbal can tilt with the selfie stick extended manually, which helps, but it'd be nice to see that part motorized as well. Shooting in the iOS app is limited to 1080p for some reason. Like, 4K shows up in the options, but... I can't select it. I admit that could be a me being stupid thing. What's nice is the gimbal doesn't actually require you to use the Cami app. You can use the stock camera app on the phone and shoot whatever mode you want. The record button still works to take photos and start video recording, and you can still use the joystick to pan. However, the other functionality like switching between cameras and photo and video are not there when you're using the stock camera app. Battery life on the gimbal is pretty awesome. You're going to get about three and a half to four hours of shooting on a single charge, which will get you through a pretty busy day, but obviously not a full eight hours. So overall, this is a nicely compact gimbal with tripod in a small case that weighs under 246 grams, so there's not much added weight or bulk to the experience. The device lies somewhere in between a full gimbal and a glorified selfie stick. It's a powerful tool for a creator on a budget. The gimbal by itself goes for under $60 on Amazon and the case and tripod and another $10. So you really can't complain there either. If you're interested in creating or you just want to shoot some steady family vacations, go pick one up today. Early in the year, I got a chance to play with a TCL 10 Pro, and it was a pro in everything but price, and at that time, TCL teased a third 5G phone coming to the market, but wasn't able to say much about it. Well, the wraps are off now, and we've got the phone in our labs for testing, and this is our full review of the TCL 10 5G UW RSVP LMNOP. One area where TCL has proved its mettle this year is in the build quality of its phones. The TCL 10 Pro was a masterpiece in phone craftsmanship, and the TCL 10 5G takes it up a notch further. Normally, I start every review by talking about the hardware, but it would be criminal to do anything else with this phone in particular, because damn, people, it is cherry. Glass front and back, which is not unusual, but on the back of the phone, TCL has a geometric pattern that's really hard to describe for an audio podcast. It's a good thing I have a YouTube channel now, and I unbox this device for that channel, so go give that a look. Basically, I'm going to use the term transflective again, which I know is a word, but I'm not sure it's the right word. But the light flashes off the back of this phone, and it's gorgeous to behold. TCL is no stranger to making phones look absolutely stunning, and the TCL 10 5G might be the stunningest, which is definitely not a word, but I'm using it anyway. Since we're already on the back of the phone, let's stay there for a second to talk about the triple camera setup. There's a 48 megapixel main shooter, an 8 megapixel ultra wide, and 5 megapixel macro lens. Like the 10 Pro, the camera array has two flashes, one on each side, but unlike the 10 Pro, the camera bump is raised. I mean, it's raised by a millimeter, but it's still raised. Also on the back of the phone, you'll find a square fingerprint reader, which is accurate enough for government work. On the right of the phone is your power button and volume rocker, and the headphone jack is on top. There's a single bottom-firing speaker which is easily accidentally covered while gaming. Getting to the internals, you've got a Snapdragon 765G processor, 6 gigabytes of RAM, 128 gigabytes of expandable storage, and a 4500 milliamp hour battery. The screen is a 6.53 inch IPS LCD display which, just like the Rebel 5G, gets some impressive blacks for an LCD screen. That's probably because of NextVision that TCL is working on these days, which we talked about a bit in the Revel 5G review. NextVision is basically a display optimizer that allows you to adjust the temperature of the screen, increase readability in sunlight, upconvert SDR to HDR, and even switch the entire phone to a grayscale reading mode. It basically makes colors more vivid and provides sharper detail on the screen and allows TCL to do some cool stuff with their panels. I get the feeling NextVision is going to be around for a while. And that nicely transitions us into software. What you've got here is a mostly stock Android 10 build with a crap ton of Verizon bloat. A clean install of this phone got me a whopping 49 apps installed, many of which are Verizon's apps for call filtering, billing, cloud, etc. Also included are Candy Crush, Color ColorHop 3D, Netflix, Pluto TV, and more. Just yuck. Returning to the software department are TCL's swiping folders. Basically, when you open a folder, you can swipe left or right to move to a different folder. It's a handy shortcut when you accidentally open the wrong folder, and I miss using it when I'm not on a TCL phone. TCL also included a TV button in the gallery app, which allows you to cast videos not only to smart screens in your home, but also to smart speakers. That's nice, except one of the times I tried it, I couldn't get the speaker to disconnect, and it was midnight. And I accidentally connected to the Lenovo essential clock on my nightstand next to my bed where my wife was sleeping. Was is the operative word, and it's okay. It's okay, everyone. I have a very comfortable couch. Anyway, getting back to casting, that's a fun little trick, even if it did get stuck that one time. Beyond that, the software is mostly what you'd expect from a clean Android build. Google folder with a suite of apps in it, Google feed off to the left, the app drawer, which can be organized into categories, and those categories can be repositioned. I really didn't use categories that much. I personally prefer alphabetical, but the categories that the apps got put into made sense, so if you're into that, you'll enjoy it. Overall, TCL has one of the nicer skins in Android, and I enjoy using it. On the performance end, this phone does very well. The Snapdragon 765G is the overclocked version of the processor. The phone could do with a little more RAM, but it's got as much as the Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition, so who am I to complain? But seriously, games like Asphalt 9 and Call of Duty run perfectly fine on this phone. It's definitely not a gaming phone, nor is it one where I would regularly export 4K video, but it definitely has some chops. From a number standpoint, this phone scores a 614 single-core score on Geekbench with an 1881 multi-core score. That puts this phone in Poco phone territory, which carried a Snapdragon 845 processor. For a mid-range processor today, that's very not bad. Battery life is a little hard to determine, mostly because this is a Verizon phone and my SIM is a T-Mobile SIM. I mean, I had a Verizon SIM in it, but I couldn't make this my true daily driver because of that reason. But what I will say is, based on my testing, the phone's battery is fairly average. I regularly got between three and a half and four and a half hours of screen on time. That varied widely based on what I did that day. So we'll call it a push and let's dive into the camera. The TCL 5G UW is a solid mid-range phone that's exclusive to the Verizon network, but it's basically the cheapest phone that you can buy that supports millimeter wave 5G, and that plus 99 cents will get you a donut. The camera on this phone packs some real surprises, though, so let's go ahead and dive right in. The camera on this phone includes a 48-megapixel main sensor, 8-megapixel ultrawide sensor, and 5-megapixel macro sensor. And in case you forget that, it's printed on the back of the phone, just like TCL cliff notes, basically. So let's see what these cameras can do. Right off the bat, you'll notice that there is a definitive loss of detail when switching between the main camera and the ultra wide. It's frankly not even close. And as much as reviewers want to thump the ultra wide drum, You're always going to be better off shooting with the main camera, which, by the way, is why it's called the main camera. Color reproduction between the two is very similar. The ultra wide lens leans more dark than the main, but honestly, not by much. The macro lens is not the best macro lens I've ever used. You can get a lot of detail when you can get focused, but it's really hard to get focused with it, which is a little disappointing because you literally had one job to do. The first really pleasant surprise we find comes in action shots, but really only in burst mode. When you attempt to grab an action shot by just pulling out the phone and snapping a photo, it's going to get blurry and lose detail. But if you use burst mode, you can actually get some pretty decent shots with a lot of detail, and this was a very, very pleasant surprise. And it's not all that surprising. A photo shot with auto mode is going to use good settings but it's not going to take into account any type of motion burst shots are literally designed for motion but still for a 400 dollars phone this camera does well with those kids who like to run around or in my case bounce after dark well let's just say the recent time change did not do this camera any favors it's not all that bad you get a lot of grain when the lights are in the distance and if you're in an area with a lot of ambient light you might actually be okay This kind of throws back to the Rebel 5G samples I took down by Wrigley Field. If you're a city dweller, you have hope. In the suburbs, you don't. Just like on the Rebel 5G, Super Night Mode still gives you a weird mix of this shot was taken almost during the day, but again, you can see odd light streaks from a light source behind you, and that makes you wonder what was blowing up off-frame. Portrait Mode is kind of a mixed bag. Some shots turn out great, others... Not so much. When the subject is not immediately clearly in the foreground, like if they're standing a bit too far back, portrait mode goes all over the place. And finally, we get to Zoom, and I'm here to tell you, just don't. Not 2x, not 4x, and sweet Jesus, don't even think about 10x. Just don't do it. If you're looking to make a mosaic out of tiles, then maybe you're going to be in good shape. But if you want something real, just do yourself a favor and walk closer. And finally, we get to video, and I'm sorry to say, video is not really good at all with this phone. Focus in particular is a problem, and I get the feeling that if TCL can push a software update to fix that, that would largely fix most of the problems, but that is far and away the biggest problem. Stability is also not that great, but it's actually hard to tell with the focus going all over the place. At night, you get the same problem. I sincerely hope that this is a problem that TCL can fix with an update, but for now, that video camera, It's kind of terrible. The exception that proves the rule, though, is my favorite super slow mo. It captures a lot of detail in the super slowed down action. I will never stop loving these videos, and this phone does a good job with it. And what else is there to say here? This, hoo No, don't say words. Don't say words. Okay. Okay, I won't say words. (laughs) Well. You heard her. I'm not allowed to say words. So I guess that's going to do it. And finally, let's round out this review with some real talk about 5G. And unfortunately, in the two weeks I tested this device, I wasn't able to get myself downtown to test the 5G network. But that doesn't mean I won't be able to ever. I've got a trip planned and a video planned for the entire Chicagoland area during an upcoming weekend, so I'll be able to report back on 5G performance then. That will definitely be a YouTube video, and I'll probably give it a good overview on the podcast as well, so stay tuned for that. What I will say is that I often found myself on Verizon's 4G network because even its 5G sub-6 network is still not as awesome as it would like you to believe. What I can tell you is that this phone does support Verizon's high speed 5G millimeter wave network, if you can find it, and that's pretty slick for a $400 phone. So, where does that leave us? Well, for one, it leaves us without a U review question, which is honestly too bad. All I'm going to say here, folks, is that the U review is your chance to have your questions about a phone answered directly by me. Next review is the iPhone 12 Pro, so start sending them in. Anyway, overall, this is a really solid buy for $400. The hardware is absolutely gorgeous. The software is Verizon, but otherwise very slick. But the camera is really just okay. Actually, I would say that the camera is on par with what you'd find in a mid-range phone about two years ago, but that's not so good today. So at the end of the day, this will not blow your mind, but it's only $400 and it supports Verizon's millimeter wave technology whenever Verizon decides to not suck at it. Of the $400 phones that we've seen thus far, coincidentally most of which were made by TCL, this is probably my recommended buy, but it is a Verizon exclusive. and If you're not a Verizon customer, then... Never mind. Have I mentioned that I don't like carrier exclusives? But seriously, this is a very solid phone for a good price point. So if you are a Verizon customer and you're looking for a new phone with 5G for a low price, this is pretty much your one option. So that's going to do it for today's podcast. I'd like to thank TCL for sending over the review device of the TCL 105 g UW. And as always, TCL received no editorial oversight over this review. These are my words. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.